Lord Jesus, I pray for your help this morning. Um, we study a hard word, a word that's hard for us to hear and understand, and I pray that you would be with us to comfort us and to lead our minds into right understanding. Pray, Lord, that you would bless me as I teach, that I would speak the truth, um, that I would speak it clearly and helpfully. I pray um, that you would feast us by this word, that you would feed our hearts and souls in your name, that you would give us what we need to live our lives as your children. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. All right, so uh, three Englishmen took a vacation together, and they went north to Scotland. And none of them had ever been to Scotland before. Uh, the first man was an engineer. Uh, the second man was a physicist. And the third was a mathematician. And they rode up together on the train to Scotland. And they were excited as they approached the Scottish border. After they crossed the border, they looked out the window, and they saw a black sheep standing in a field. And the engineer cried out, look, all the sheep in Scotland are black. The physicist corrected him. From this evidence, you can only say that one of the sheep in Scotland is black. But the mathematician had the last word. He said, no, we can merely say that there exists in Scotland at least one sheep, at least one side of which is black. <laughs> now, uh, that's a bit of a nerdy joke. I was first told that joke um, by my roommate in college, who was a mathematician. And uh, I, of course, was an engineer. <laughs> so he really enjoyed telling that to me. Um, and what it does is it plays on the stereotype that mathematics is the purest and most exact of the sciences, and it calls for the most highly trained and organized and disciplined minds. While engineering is the least exact. <laughs> and I have to admit that that's probably true. So to be a good mathematician takes intense mental training a kind of mental crossfit to train the mind to see the world as it really is, so that each piece of evidence says what it says, no more and no less. And that doesn't come easy to the human brain. It takes intense training because it's not the way that anybody naturally thinks. What our brains do, if we're honest, is that we're so desperate to live in a world that makes sense to us that we tend to interpret any bits of data we get quickly and carelessly until we come to any kind of conclusion. So we jump to whatever conclusion makes us feel most comfortable. And we do that by using stereotypes, and we make snap judgments. And what we do is we throw up a clumsy framework in our minds of how the world works so at least we'll have something to go on. But the next thing that happens is that once that clumsy framework is built, we're very reluctant to lose it. We cling tightly onto it. We defend it jealously. And if any pesky facts get in the way of it, we tend to like, push them away. And what that is, is it's a statement that naturally our thinking is very childish. What our education system does is do its very best to change that, to help us to think more maturely. And mathematics, probably more than any of the sciences, trains minds to think clearly and properly. It trains minds to be mature. Now, mature thinking is a good and godly thing. 
God wants it for all of his children. And that is part of the reason that he gave us his word. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And so today I want to think about how God's word helps us to think maturely about suffering. Suffering, I think, is perhaps the subject where our thinking is generally most immature, most like the engineer and least like the mathematician. And I know that suffering isn't in any way a theoretical subject for any of us. It's a very real subject. But nevertheless, the way that we think about it is very, very important. So our Gospel reading from Luke 13 has a lot to say today about suffering and how we are to make sense out of it. And in Luke 13, Jesus corrects three very immature ways of thinking about suffering, and here they are. First, that other people suffer more than I do because they deserve it more. Second, that my suffering proves that God's not good. And third, my suffering proves that God is judging me for something. So, first, other people suffer more than I do because they deserve it more. Second, my suffering proves that God's not good. And third, my suffering proves that God is judging me for something. Those are three very common ways of thinking about suffering, and none of them are true. Jesus is going to show us why. So, here's the first lie about suffering, that other people suffer more than I do because they deserve it more. Now, when I say that, you might think that's ridiculous. Nobody thinks that that I'm just setting up a straw man, and that's not the way that anybody really feels. Um, well, people might not say it that bluntly, but I think many people really do think that. Um, and that sort of thinking is even in the Bible. You might have heard it as we read it from Job chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, it's probably helpful to look back to Job chapter 4. The book of Job is quite hard to find, I think. It's after Kings and Chronicles, and it's right before the Psalms. You can find it tucked in there, the book of Job. And uh, in chapter 4, we read the words of a man called Eliphaz the Temanite, uh, who was one of the three friends who came to visit Job when Job was suffering. Eliphaz the Temanite. And here's what Eliphaz says in Job chapter 4, verse 7. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen... Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, what Eliphaz thought is that suffering doesn't come to the innocent, but only to the guilty. So do you notice that Eliphaz here draws a straight line between personal morality and personal suffering? So good people don't suffer. Only bad people suffer. And for Eliphaz, the connection works in both directions. So if you do bad things, you should expect to suffer. And if you suffer, it proves you must have done something bad. So Eliphaz took that reasoning and applied it to Job. He looked at Job's suffering, and he concluded that Job must have sinned. And he spends most of the book of Job looking for where Job has sinned. Now, you've probably never heard of this guy, Eliphaz, before, unless you've studied Job for some reason. 
Um, but we do need to know two things about him. So here's Eliphaz. First, he was considered very, very wise in his time. He wasn't a fool. He was a wise man. So we know about Job himself that he lived very early in biblical history, probably around or before the time of Abraham. And Job was famous in his day for being one of the wisest men alive on the earth. When Job's life collapsed and his three friends came to visit him, they came from different countries that were hundreds of miles apart. So it seems that each of these three friends was the wisest man in his own country. And they were friends with Job because of their mutual wisdom. That's what brought them together. So Eliphaz was no fool. He was a world-class ancient philosopher. But the second thing to remember is that the book of Job condemns Eliphaz in the end, along with Job's other, other two friends. God forgives the three friends for their false words, but only because Job prays for them. So these words that we heard from Eliphaz, they're in the Bible, but that doesn't make them right. We need to pay attention to the context. And in the end, the Bible does not approve of what Eliphaz had to say. So what Eliphaz had to say was very wise by human standards, among the wisest thing that was said on earth at the time. But it was still wrong. But the fact that Eliphaz was wrong hasn't stopped a whole lot of people following after him and thinking along the same lines. And most strikingly, it seems to have been the standard way of thinking for pretty much all the Jewish people who were alive at the time of Jesus. And we can see this, especially if you think about the story of the man born blind in John's Gospel. It's in John chapter 9. And the way that the people relate to this man because he was born blind. So at the beginning of the story in, in John chapter 9, the disciples meet the man who'd been born blind. And here's what they ask Jesus. Who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So the disciples take it as read that if there's suffering, there must be some underlying cause of sin. And that is straight out of the school of Eliphaz. Then later on in the story of the man born blind, the Jewish leaders meet him and they take the same line with him. Despite the evidence that Jesus has healed him, they say to him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? So the leaders of the Jewish people follow the same line of thinking, that the blind man's sin is proven by his blindness, that sin is proven by suffering. This was the standard way of thinking throughout the whole country. And these people, too, were graduates of the school of Eliphaz. So it seems that by the time Jesus came to earth, the school of Eliphaz had completely dominated Jewish thought. And Eliphaz said, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And today, as we think about our present context, we see that the school of Eliphaz is alive and well, isn't it? It hasn't gone away. So think about Maria von Trapp. Maria von Trapp was a graduate. At least the Rogers and Hammerstein version of her was in The Sound of Music. Because in The Sound of Music, the moment Maria finds out that the man of her dreams wants to marry her, what does she sing? Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done. 
right? And that idea comes right out of the school of Eliphaz. In the same way, whenever a big natural disaster hits somewhere in the world, you will usually hear Christians, and sometimes even normal, sensible Christians, saying that God is judging that place for some specific sin, won't you? You hear that. And that is out of the school of Eliphaz. And for ourselves, we have probably thought this way too, to one degree or another. We've listened to this teaching from the school of Eliphaz. If we've ever experienced some kind of suffering and asked ourselves, why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? This kind of thinking seems to come very naturally to us, like it's in our DNA. But we must recognize that it's childish. It's simplistic, and it's out of touch with reality. And Jesus would have us grow up out of it. So flip forward now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13 and verse 1. In verse 1 of Luke 13, some people came to Jesus and asked him what to make of a terrible tragedy that had been in the news. So here's what happened. A group of Galileans were traveling to Jerusalem for one of the annual Jewish feasts, which was prob probably the Feast of Passover. And Pilate had them viciously massacred, along with the animals that they were bringing to sacrifice. So the people's blood and the animals' blood flowed together. And we don't know anything more than that about this tragedy. We can't find any other records of it. Just what we have recorded in this one verse. So we don't know who those Galileans were, or whether they were murdered in Jerusalem or somewhere along the road. And we don't really know why Pilate did this. But what's important in the story is the horrific and terrifying and dishonorable way that those Galileans died. They were victims of a brutal crime that deeply offended Jewish sensibilities. And the unspoken question that Jesus gets in verse 1 is, what had those Galileans done wrong to deserve such a death? And Jesus knew, as he had got this question, that his entire audience were graduates of the school of Eliphaz. So he responded by saying what they were really thinking. He asked them back, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? To which Eliphaz would say, Yes. And the Pharisees would say, yes. And even Jesus' own disciples would say, yes. But Jesus answers his own question emphatically, no. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's terrifying. Likewise perish. Jesus warns them that they will die in the same frightening and dishonorable way. So what he says is that those Galileans did not receive worse than their sins deserved. And he warns everyone listening to him that it's not worse than anyone's sins deserve. So Jesus says and warns them that what came to those Galileans today will come to everyone tomorrow. So what appears to be a discrepancy of treatment is really only a discrepancy of timing. Now, Jesus doesn't say that there's no connection between suffering and sin. There is a connection. 
all human suffering is a result of human sin in general. And some of our sin carries its own direct consequences of suffering, like going to jail for murdering someone, or getting drunk and then waking up with a hangover. There are direct consequences for sin, but Jesus says here that we are not allowed to make a connection between anyone's specific sin and the suffering that comes to them specifically. We cannot draw that line. That's what Eliphaz thought, but it's not right. That's not the way God has ordered his world. He is going to judge people for their sins specifically, but not until the day of judgment. And until then, we should read all tragic events that cause people to suffer as warnings that that final judgment is coming to all of us. So the fact that, people, that other people have to face more suffering than we do right now is not a discrepancy of treatment. It's only a discrepancy of timing. So Jesus trained his followers not to look for a root cause of suffering in other people's sin, but instead to take warning, examine our own hearts, and repent of our own sin. And finally, Jesus went ahead and proved in his own body that Eliphaz was flat wrong. Because Jesus was perfectly good. The only man who ever lived who didn't deserve to die, but he gave himself up to the cross. And there he crucified the school of Eliphaz once and for all. So that's the first lie about suffering. That other people suffer more than I do because they deserve it more. And here's the truth. Unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. Amen. Now for the second lie. That my suffering proves that God's not really good. Now if the first lie is one that we don't really hear very much these days, then the second lie is one that we hear a lot. How many people have you known whose faith has been shipwrecked by this rock that they face some kind of suffering and they end up concluding that this is such a terrible thing that God can't really be good after all. He's not really worth worshipping. He doesn't really love me. He doesn't really care about me. And we ourselves might have been tempted to feel this way. We might sympathize with this response. This world is full of tears. And people face terrible things and our hearts break for their pain. And when we see it, we don't really know what we would do if we had to face that situation. But at the same time, we have to recognize that the God is not good line is immature thinking. It doesn't make good sense based on the data about God that we find in the Bible. And we can see it right here in Luke 13. So look at Luke 13, verse 6, and Jesus told him a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should I use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So in this parable, the fig tree is a symbol for Israel, the people of God, and the man who planted it and the vine dresser are both aspects of God himself, the gardener. So the picture in the parable is that God planted his own people in good soil with the expectation of them bearing fruit. And if there's no fruit, 
The tree has no purpose, and any reasonable farmer would cut it down. The cutting down is the part of the parable that corresponds to the warning of Jesus that you will all likewise perish. So the picture in the parable is the same as the Bible's explanation for the whole world, that God made it, that he owns it, that he provides for it, that he made it for a purpose. And if it fails to meet that purpose, he'll cut it down. The fruitless fig tree in the parable would have no right to feel the blade of the axe and tell the farmer that he wasn't good. But more than this, the parable expresses God's patience towards his people, his mercy that's always willing to work a little harder and work a little longer and wait a little longer for the fruit to come. We see his obvious reluctance to give up on the fruitless tree and that patience towards his people and that mercy that's part of God's character is unquestionably good. Furthermore, what is God's attitude toward human suffering? Does God sit in heaven laughing malevolently and feasting on our pain? No, he hates it. It breaks his heart. What did Jesus do when he came to earth? Every time he saw people suffering, he ended it. He healed them. He opened blind eyes and fixed lame legs. He cast out demons and cleaned out leprosy. He even raised people from death. Jesus had compassion on people. He was deeply moved by their pain. He wept over the tomb of Lazarus. And when he saw the crippled woman in Luke 13, he healed her right then, that day, on the Sabbath, 18 years, and he's not going to wait one more day for this woman to be freed. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord in Ezekiel 18.32. So turn and live. This compassion and care that God shows for his creation is unquestionably good. And finally, ultimately, God's attitude to suffering is seen with blazing clarity on the cross of Jesus. When the Son of God gave his own life in shame and agony so that he could save us. He suffered in our place. He suffered instead of us. He suffered the judgment for sin so that we wouldn't have to. So don't you tell me that God's not good. Let's grow up and realize that we suffer much less than we deserve. And be thankful for the days that the trials don't come instead of surprised on the days that they do. This present situation will not last long. We look forward to a day when there will be no more suffering on the earth. God sits in heaven with a red button and the second he presses it, suffering is done. His finger is on the button. Why doesn't he press it today? He has a good reason not to. Do you know how many people are going to come to faith today? I looked that up today. 178,000 people in this world are going to put their trust in Jesus today. So God waits one more day to press the button so that those people will come out of darkness into light, will be forgiven, will come to live eternally in heaven. Can you put up with your suffering for one more day? 
for the sake of 178,000 people? Yes, we can. So that's the second lie about suffering, that my suffering proves that God's not good. And here's the truth, because God is good, we all suffer less than we deserve. God reserved the ultimate suffering for himself, and God's going to end all suffering uh, as soon as he can. And so finally, the third lie, that my suffering proves that God's judging me for something. And I suppose this is just another manifestation of the school of Eliphaz, because it's still the idea that who that was innocent ever perished, so if I'm suffering, I must be guilty. But I want to talk about it as a separate thing, because I think some of us allow our suffering to keep us under a black cloud of guilt. And that's people that take the Bible seriously, um, people who realize that we are sinful and broken, and that it's a big deal, and that human suffering, broadly speaking, is a result of human sin, broadly speaking. And so from that evidence from the Bible, we come to the conclusion that we're suffering today because we're under God's frown. Because for some reason we're not good enough for God, or because we've messed something up. Don't ever think that. That's what Eliphaz would say, and Eliphaz was wrong. The truth about suffering is far more glorious. So here's the reality. If you've put your trust in Jesus and repented of your sin, then he's forgiven you. He's taken every bit of your sin and paid for it on the cross, every single bit of it. There's nothing left to charge you for. There's nothing left for you to pay. There's nothing you could pay anyway. It's all paid. The whole transaction is done. So if we suffer as Christians, it cannot be for our own sin. It just can't. And yet, of course, we do still suffer, no less than anyone else in the world, and sometimes perhaps more. So our suffering is not reduced, but it is transformed. Once we're reborn as children of God, our bodily suffering is not the same thing that it used to be before. So it's no longer a warning of our coming judgment. Instead, it becomes a participation in the life of our Lord Jesus. So suffering is still miserable, but it becomes noble. It's still miserable, but it becomes purposeful and glorious. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, worked really hard to tease this out in his first letter. He was writing to Christians who were confused by their suffering, and they were trying to make sense of it in a very violent world. And if you find yourself in a similar place of confusion about suffering, then I recommend that you read carefully through the whole of the book of 1 Peter. That's what it's all about. We read part of it this morning from 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 12, where Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. So very briefly as I close, here are three ways that our suffering, whatever form it takes, is actually a cause for joy. So first, our suffering brings us closer to Jesus. Our Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He chose the path of suffering for our sake, and now he invites us from whom no more suffering is required to choose the path of suffering for his sake. 
Instead of driving us far from God, our suffering actually brings us experientially closer to God if we let it. We know God's love for us deeply and profoundly when we realize that Jesus came here to this place of sorrow to find me. Our suffering teaches us the power of God's love. We cannot outsuffer our God. However deeply we plunge into pain, he's already there ahead of us. So he keeps us company in the worst of it. Second, suffering produces all kinds of good things in our hearts. Um, so God has various tools in his toolbox for our transformation, but suffering is by far the most effective, we have to say. I'm sure he uses it as little as he can, but boy does it get the job done. Suffering weans our hearts away from self-love, our love for idols, our love for worldly things, and instead it gives us a hunger for heavenly things and a hunger to go home to heaven itself. Suffering tests our faith, as Peter says, and it brings us quickly out of childishness into maturity. If you've ever met a 12-year-old child who's unusually mature, well-rounded, and sensible, you can be sure that that child has suffered. And similarly, if we would be mature Christians, then the path of suffering is the quickest and surest way. Hebrews chapter 12 assures us that we should take suffering as a compliment from God. God's taking the time to discipline us as his beloved children. The author writes, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. So be sure that God will not use suffering in your life any more than he absolutely has to for your transformation. He keeps that tool in the box unless it's really needed, unless nothing else will work. But if he has to use that tool in your life right now, be confident that he's doing something big and important, something that you'll thank him for later. And finally, the path of suffering is the road to glory. For Jesus, the cross stands out as the greatest moment of triumph and glory in his life, doesn't it? The moment that he conquered death, the moment that he conquered sin. It was the greatest thing God ever did. The greatest thing that God ever did. And Jesus' death could have spared us death. We do not owe the wages of sin anymore. They are already paid. But isn't it actually far better that instead of sparing us from suffering and death, Jesus calls us to follow him to glory along the same road that he walked? Isn't it far better that we actually get to share in his most glorious moment? to participate in his sin-bearing, world-saving, Satan-crushing death. That's what suffering is for us now. It's a participation with Christ. And that's what death is. It's a sharing with Jesus in his death. That's what Paul means when he says that death has been swallowed up in victory. Isn't that amazing? It totally transforms the way we view suffering and death. It gives our suffering purpose and nobility and dignity and even glory. 
And suffering starts to seem like an amazing gift. Perhaps we can even start to see why the apostles were so excited about it. Why they were so joyful about suffering. So the third lie is that my suffering proves that God's judging me for something. But the truth is that suffering is a gift of God for our joy. We must let the word of God bring us up to maturity in all our thinking. And especially the way that we think about suffering. We will all face many difficult trials. With childish thinking, those trials could mean shipwreck for us. But Jesus teaches us mature thinking that can transform our suffering into joy. Let's pray. Jesus, please confirm this word in us. Make us humble servants of your word. Please comfort us in our suffering today. And please lead us forward into glory in your footsteps. We ask it in your powerful name. Amen.